across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. So... How was it for you? We've reached the end of yet another week, but it's been a much better one than most have been recently. Have you been out spending money? Have you been out uh, able to go back to work? Have you started going back to the office? Is the working at home revolution over for you? Or are you still doing it and planning on never going back to the old ways of life? This morning we'll be talking to SDP leader William Clouston, a firm believer in returning our freedoms sooner rather than later. I'll be asking him about the edginess that's out there and why we can't be lifting lockdown even quicker. Yesterday uh, I was out and about with a couple of people from work and around London Bridge, there's lots of normality out there, I can tell you that. We're also talking to Angela Raffle, whose prediction that mass testing was a waste of time has turned out to be, guess what, 100% correct. It turns out that as few as 2 to 10% of rapid tests currently being done are accurate. That means as many as 98% might be wrong. That means nearly all of the positives could be wrong and nearly all of the negatives could be wrong too. That pretty much means it's worthless, doesn't it? 03444991000. How can they manage to come up with such a ridiculous system which is so unreliable? And then tell us that they're basing all of their predictions and all of their policies on it. Coming up later on, Rupert Bell joins us ahead of the principal at funeral at the weekend. He'll be telling us why he believes everyone is going way over the top. But what are we to do? How could it be right that the Queen has to sit all alone with a mask on? And how can it be right that the brothers William and Harry won't be walking side by side? I'm afraid people are going to take notice of that. 03444991000. We'll continue asking you the questions as well. Are you noticing a sense of edginess out there in the streets, in the bars and on public transport? Tell us what you've seen, what you've heard and how everyone is behaving. You are the eyes and ears, of course, of the independent republic. And we'll be discovering why a charity is the latest organisation to perform a mea culpa because of their previous associations with slavery. That's right. It's the Thomas Roundtree Foundation. Maybe we should just have a national apology day uh, when we can all get it out of our systems. What would you like to apologise for? You can text us on 8, uh, uh, 1089, of course. You can also te- uh, give us a call on 03444991000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Also ahead of the big weekend of shows for Kevin O'Sullivan, he'll be here as well to talk to us about why cheese, apparently, is the latest thing that's been accused of being racist. Oh, and guess what? Chris Whitty, apparently, they're talking about getting him on Strictly. Can you imagine Chris Whitty dancing? That'd be great, wouldn't it? Let's talk to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. William, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. It's been a better week for most of us than uh, previous weeks have been. We've finally seen some uh, activity out there. Restaurants, bars, shops, hairdressers, gyms. You know, people are going out and about. It's busier than it was. How's it been for you? Yeah, I mean, you can see it. You can just feel the atmosphere. Um, I think we're gradually going back to what we might call normality, and uh, that's a very good thing. I think there are still a few bumps in the road, though. My, a pub that I use in Northumberland was found its way into the Telegraph for refusing an older gentleman uh, a pint because he didn't have a, a smartphone. Oh, is that uh, the place near you? Yeah, I saw that story. Yeah, no, I've, I've drunk, well, probably thousands of pints in that pub. Uh, it's a good pub. But the thing is, they need to remember that uh, over, over the over 70s, a lot of them don't have smartphones. Right. Uh, and uh, so he couldn't have, couldn't have provided a smartphone with the app on if he tried. So bless him. So, I, I mean... What we have to remember is that as we unlock, if you can't if you can't walk into a pub, uh, pay a fiver or a tenner actually probably in London, mm. um, 
and, and order a pint, uh, go in, drink your pint and leave without any of this uh, bureaucracy, then we're not really living in a free society. So that's what I judge it on. Yes, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, I have I've been told about certain places in London that are only allowing people in if they've got the app. But most places I've been to uh, are saying, if you haven't got the app, it's fine. Just give us your name uh, and, and a contact, whether it's an email, whether it's a phone or something like that. And I think they have to be that flexible because if they're not going to be that flexible, people just aren't going to go in. I think that is the law as well, Mike, actually. I think the, the, if, you, you, if you leave your details, you can, leave it, you can write them down if you, if you need to. So um, anyway, I mean, it's all part of this new infrastructure, uh, the test and trace, famous test and trace um, uh, Yes, which, which didn't uh, work last time, so they decided to use it again. <laughs> well, what's baffling, what's completely baffling, Mike, is how, how the government, I mean, obviously cronyism and these contracts are, are in the news now, but how has the government spent £37 billion on this NHS test and trace scheme? That, that figure is bigger than the GDPs of several EU member states. Right. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just astonishing. Well, I mean, it's one thing to spend that kind of money, which you and I would find absolutely bafflingly difficult to do, but it's another mm. thing to spend it on something that doesn't work. I mean, surely you could yeah. have spent, like, what, 10 quid on it and it wouldn't work. Why would you need to spend 30 billion to discover that it didn't work? Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's running, it's gone out of control, completely out of control. And the committees that have looked at it have said that it doesn't, it, quite right, Mike, that it doesn't work very well. It just, as I say, this is just astonishing how you can rack up expenditure of that, of that kind, of that mm. magnitude, that, 37 billion. I, I, as I say, have a look at the record of GDPs and there's several, st you know, half the world's uh, population live in states that don't have GDPs that big. So um, it's, it's astonishing. I don't know where we go from here. I think we've just got to, Remain optimistic, you know, it's the next month, mid-next mid month, uh, the, the proper pubs will be open. Mm. Most pubs don't have beer gardens, so we'll just have to, to have, be optimistic and hope, uh, hope we can get back. Yes, I think so. But I have always been of the opinion, William, that, that what will happen is a gradual kind of recognisance by the public that things are returning to normal. And the more that they see normality, the more they will kind of join in with it. And that's kind of what we're seeing already in the sense that more people are going back to work, more people are talking about repopulating offices. I think those mm. who will uh, still bang on about how great it is to work from home will find themselves having fewer and fewer kind of allies in that uh, particular regard. Because in, in, in the end, most people, I think, I'm right in saying, would prefer to go to to work yeah you well you also if you're young if you're a young uh, employee you can't really be trained properly at home no uh, pajamas, that's quite true and and the FOMO effect will be quite considerable um, no I expect actually when people do start going back I think you'll you'll all, I think you know a lot of economists and, and so on say that we've we've had about 10 years worth of um, digitization and remoteness put on to us in sort of you know best part of a year or just over a year, and there's some truth in that. But I think I think mean reversion is very powerful. I think as soon as you know businesses open up again and offices open again, I think people will like to go. And we're social animals, and we we want to see what's going on in the office and, and have a chat. And as mm. I say, if you if you're a young person, you're interested in getting promoted, might be a good idea if you get to know the people you're working with. Yes, exactly right. And I've noticed certainly around this part of London, um, more and more young people out and about because I think. Once you know that there are places you can go, for example, mm. um, you're mm. going to want to come back into the city. I mean, I can quite understand people not wanting to come into the city when there was nothing open. But now that pretty much everything is open, uh, why wouldn't you? Yeah, you will. I, I hope so. Let's be optimistic. But you, you've always got, I mean, at the back of, you know, compared to the optimism that we share, you've always got a lot of people 
want to continue the sort of process of fear and fear mongering. So, you know, you've got people always, you'll always have new variants. This is endemic, you know, every time it's passed on, it changes slightly. You will have new variants. You'll have lots of scare stories in the summer and beyond about this happening and that happening. And then you'll get stories like, you know, Chile is an interesting example of a state that, that is vaccinated mm. widely and they've got a, a new wave. Now, the problem with that is that the vaccine they use possibly isn't as effective as the one we've got. So it's not it's not worth putting scare stories about, about Chile because it's not they didn't they didn't use the same jab as us. No. Not as effective. So you'll always have these. I think we just have to, you know, um, fight against it and put some rationality into into things and try and reclaim the freedoms. As I've said before, I think the, the, the you know, uh, it's like va the argument on vaccine passports. There is no point in having the vaccine. The vaccine is there to get our freedom back, not to restrict it. Exactly right. And I'm afraid this uh, testing regime, which we're going to be talking about later on the show, looks as though it's a waste of time as well. Because I was quite shocked to see on Monday, I think it was, uh, suddenly this uh, testing station uh, popping up outside of London Bridge Station, uh, which is actually yeah. an asymptomatic testing station where they're saying, you know, come along, get yourself tested. There might be some new variants knocking about in Southwark and in Lambeth. I mean, you know, they'll be chasing the tails forever if that's what they're going to do. Well, they will. Yeah. As I say, I think I'm hoping that we, the, you know, as uh, all of this stuff will continue on the sidelines, as most people get on with their lives, go to shops, go to offices, go to pubs. I mean, I think international travel is going to be curtailed. And certainly I've always said I, I prioritize the domestic economy over international travel. I think probably, it, it, you know, in retrospect, we were probably too lax in, le in letting people in. Uh, no, but I think we still are, to be honest. I don't think we've ever yeah. got to grips with, with, with the with borders. I mean, even now, when we're supposedly mm. putting people in hotel quarantine, there's thousands yeah. of people coming through. We just did a story yesterday that people are waiting six and seven hours to come through immigration at Heathrow. And quite rightly, quite a lot of people saying to me, who are these people? Yeah, I know. No, the, 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 the traffic has continued uh, unabated, actually. We're a long, long way from uh, the sort of autarky uh, Australian system, which mm. is a proper system. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of other states around the world have, have far tighter restrictions. Mm. I think we, we live to regret that, actually. As I say, I would prioritise our own domestic economy. And if we have to go uh, on holiday um, to Scarborough or to Scotland or Wales, or whatever, then fine. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. But there are, of course, no. people who will tell you that they need to travel for work. People who will tell you, as, as I would, that I've got relatives abroad that I'd like to go and see. So, you know, it's not just about going on holiday either. We, that's true. I mean, we... we we're an Anglo-Australian family. We, you know, my wife uh, went over to Australia. She had to, uh, for compassionate reasons, but she had to, uh, you know, um, sit in a, a hotel uh, room for for two weeks yeah. and not leave. I mean, it's not a. That's a state that implies uh, applies very very stringent measures, and so it's not just the cost actually, but that's a you know, really serious inhibitor. Um, you've got to have a very good reason to to travel to Australia. Yes, absolutely. And at the moment, I don't think you're going to be very welcome, I'm afraid, and they're not going to be very no. happy to see you. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, a couple of other things as well. Big week, of course. Uh, this time last week, uh, we, it was announced that Prince Philip had died. Um, and obviously the funerals tomorrow, we'll be covering that uh, live here at Talk Radio. Uh, a big mm. moment for, for this country, but also the death of Shirley Williams, a big moment for politics in this country and probably for, for you as the, as the SDP. Yeah, a, a giant social democrat, and uh, you know, I think all of us were were, were sad to to see uh, to hear that she died uh, age ninety. Um, certainly, you know, 
I think she 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 possibly could be described as the indispensable member of the Gang of Four, mm. um, you know, and possessed um, all the qualities that you'd need uh, for a successful career in public life. You know, she was an excellent debater, um, an excellent communicator, and and in particular had a had a way of communicating or sort of connecting with people. Um, yeah, a very fine politician, and uh, certainly if you compare the likes of Shirley Williams to the present crop of Labour politicians, I'm afraid it doesn't compare very well. I'm afraid it doesn't, no. I mean, Labour is still floundering around. I mean, even this week at uh, Prime Minister's Questions, when he seemed to be getting somewhere uh, with his kind of uh, uh, throwing uh, mud at uh, the Tories and calling them a sleazy party and all of that. So Keir Starmer managed to sort of mess it all up by trying to look trendy, by bringing in, um, you know, line of duty into the mix. Yeah, he's uh, his. I mean, his. I don't know if you follow Ma Matthew Goodwin on Twitter, but Matthew um, regularly tweets the polls and the, the latest uh, polling evidence on Starmer. And I'm afraid it's it couldn't be more depressing for the Labour Party. Really, he's made no impact at all. No. And uh, his his net uh, approval ratings are, are absolutely abysmal. And I think his problem basically is that um, you know there's there's lots of problems with their previous core vote, mm. which is just abandoning them, but. His, his basic problem is he, for three years, he tried to deny the British people uh, the, the correct result in the, in the referendum that they vote, voted mm. for. And people, people don't forget that. So all his attempts to pretend, you know, to, have a, to sit in front of a British flag, it just reeks of inauthenticity, basically. And, and, and people can see through it. Yeah. So I'm afraid he, um, he's not making very much progress. No, I mean, I just don't think anyone knows what he stands for, apart from anything else. I mean, he's got an incredibly divided party. He's got factionalism going on all over the place. He doesn't really know which side uh, he's on. He doesn't know which side to back. He only seems to react to things. He doesn't have any leadership skills whatsoever. I'm sorry to, to throw him under the bus in this way, but I just can't think of one thing he's any good at. No, he's he's trying to... It's, a, it's, it's an impossible job um, to try and combine... The the people you know the, the the voters he needs to vote for him have a, you know patriotic sensible non woke normal Brits now that he's losing those voters the Labour Party is increasingly uh, you know basically a sort of middle class woke party that's completely estranged from its pre previous vote and I don't mind people voting for what they believe in what I do mind is is people trying to get votes. To which they're not entitled, mm. and that's what Starmer's trying to do. I mean, he, he's got no chance whatsoever of keeping his traditional heartlands, you know, the so-called Red Wall. Mm. People, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people in the Labour Party still don't understand what's going on with the Red Wall. The Red Wall, people talk about it as a swing. You know, we're accustomed to thinking, mm. you know, a, a like a swingometer. You know, it'll swing back to like no, it won't. Yeah, it's cultural rotation. Uh, because the Labour Party basically have contempt for a lot of the values that those red wall voters have. And if that's the case, I'm afraid they're not entitled to the votes. We can build something better. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I liken it more, William, to what happened in Scotland, you know, where Labour used to basically own Scotland. Uh, they used to control most of the parliamentary seats up there. Um, and certainly before devolution, they were the only game in town because nobody liked a Tory in Scotland. And that's pretty much still the case. But they lost Scotland to the SNP and they're never getting that back. And I think the same thing has happened to the north of England. Oh, well, I mean, there's no doubt at all. I think the... The, the the next election they probably lose even more of those red wall seats the problem for the red wall voter is of course that the party that's hoovering those seats up 
the Tories are not also then they're another liberal party of a type mm. and particularly on the economics don't they're not particularly they're totally indifferent to what is made where and by whom and they've done nothing for industry at all so what red wall voters want is is a party that's committed to to reshoring reindustrializing getting the good indu- mm. industrial job back and putting the country first in those terms and i don't think there's any prospect of the of the tories doing that so they you know, it'll take a bit of time, but, I, you know, it'll sort itself out. I, but I, I totally agree, Michael. There's no way with all the wokery that the Labour Party come out with now uh, that Starmer has, you know, taking the knee for BLM and things. That's not a good play no. in rebel seats. No, it really isn't. Finally, William, what about the uh, speeding up of the of the lifting of the lockdown? I mean, we've pretty much given up on that uh, particular hair now. And we, I don't think we're going to see Boris Johnson doing anything quicker than uh, than he's set out so far. Yeah, I agree. I think we just, I, I said, I think last time I was on the time before, I think, you know, a lot of what we've argued is moot now. I think we we, we just have to, Johnson's going to stick to his his timetable. And, uh, you know, in, 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 and obviously some other nations in the UK, you might have it speeded up slightly, but basically he's going to stick to it. Um, you know, the, 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 the data now uh, is very positive. You know, death rates are very, very low. Hospitalization is very, very low. The viral curve's um, collapsing. So, you know, I'm optimistic. I think we just have to, to roll our sleeves up, Mike, and, and, and look forward to what I hope will be a great summer. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. William, thank you very much. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very, very good morning to the busiest man in show business. It is, of course, Rupert Bell, because in amongst all of this coverage of the Royal Family, Rupert, you've had to do the Grand National. Uh, you've been doing other racing events. You've been doing tennis. I mean, you know, it doesn't stop, does it? Uh, no, it's been quite a... From about, uh, as you say, uh, 55 minutes ago right. uh, uh, to go, to it, my life changed mm. for quite dramatically in the yes. week. Because suddenly, well, obviously, I think for a lot of people, our yes. lives changed with a different outlook. Um, and obviously, from a professional point of view, it meant that uh, I was quite busy with obviously the Grand National mm. still going on. And then, uh, yes, I did cover some tennis and I have been working on a, uh, a tennis radio station. And I have to say... I, I'm, I, people say, well, what are you, else are you doing? So I said, mm. well, I, this is my other job. And then I do know this particular radio station has a very committed fat tennis fan who lives in Corfu. Oh, yes. So, and one thing I have, we haven't talked, seemed, okay, we've got members of Philip's family coming to the funeral for, who are descendants of, um, from the, the Greek side of the mm. family and the Danish side of the family, or based in Germany. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got sent the most fabulous picture of Prince Philip uh, with this person's mother from the early 60s pictured in Corfu. And it was the most, it's the most lovely picture. But the important thing is, Philip was very keen to remember where he came from. Yes. Yes, he was a huge, well, his commitment to this country was unwavering, Mm. but he was fully aware of his stateless at times childhood. And that was an important part of his sort of DNA yes. in terms of how he viewed and bearing in mind that his relatives weren't allowed to attend his wedding mm. because of the German connection right. in 1947 and the Queen Mother had a, a view about that. Right. Um, so did she effectively block them then? To some extent. She also blocked Duchess of Windsor coming right. to the, uh, I think it was uh, the funeral right. of, of, King, of her husband. Right. So the Duke of Windsor made a lonely boat and so you know there are parallels obviously mm. a lonely boat ride as it was then yes to come and be part of the um 
uh, of the funeral for King George VI, his brother. And uh, Queen Mary at the time was hoping there would be a rapprochement Mm. between the families, but um, that never happened because the Queen Mother uh, was never able to forgive um, the Duchess of Windsor. And and listening to you talking about his his sort of upbringing and, and, and how different it was probably to uh, to his son's upbringing and Charles and, and, and all the rest of the royal family. I mean, it wouldn't be right to say that he came from sort of humble beginnings because he didn't really come from humble beginnings, but they were they were sort of down at heel slightly. Uh, well, they? they were because he was also had to get out quickly because his father was uh, accused of treason. Um, it was after the Greek-Turkish war. I, I mean, my history's not great on that, right. but obviously the, well, there's always been, and I do know because I lived in Cyprus, there's always been tensions between Turkey and yes. Greece quite well, clearly, they, and, and there still are, there still are, there still Cyprus, are. Yeah. yeah, huge. So the tensions were there and they had to abdicate, and by all accounts, well, I led, A, he was born in a villa, by all accounts, on a dining room table, yes. in this rather nice villa, it has to be said, mm. Mon Repos, but then he had to be um, evacuated in an orange box, by all accounts, out of the country. Right. So this was in the, this was probably nine, I think he was only eighteen months old in nineteen twenty two. Right. So uh, you actually end up with this guy who then is moving from state to state. Eventually, through Lord Mountbatten and their family, he finds his roots come down in this country. Goes to Cheam Prep School, then he goes to Gortonston, and then obviously into the navy. But then by then his Britishness has evolved, and he uh, eventually became a British citizen. Yeah. And Clearly a passionate one, but what was most important, and I think when he was planning the funeral, he did want members of his sister, his, um, you know, his aunts and uncles to, to come. And so he's got great nephews and people coming. So uh, and which I think is very important. And part of his wishes was to ensure that that happened, right. even to find a way. Now they're isolating, I believe, in a house near Ascot yes. since they've come over. And so of, of the 30 people, I mean, will quite a few of those be not very well known to us then? Uh, that, well, in terms of those ones from Germany, yes, right. um, uh, they will not be well known, but they are part of his family. And he did make an effort to see his family as much as possible. And you actually get a sense, because I think he was um, stateless in many ways, Yes, that sense of family and trying to belong to things was important to mm. him. And that's why I think when we see all, you know, we know all families and nev- every family has divisions. Yes. If there is one out there, then I, I want to know what their role model is, how they're doing it. Mm. But very few won't have some something that forces a, a change in the dynamic. But yeah. he was desperate to try and create a, a unity. Now, it was clearly the royal family hasn't always been a unified front. No. And clearly, when it comes back to the point that we were talking about before we came on air, that they've tried to... The, everyone, because you've got a week from when it happened... Everyone is now trying to accentuate the rifts that are out there. And the Harry story is clearly there is pro- there are problems. Yes. And we know there are. But it's now been just... The story should be about Philip. Now, whatever the... And what the Queen has decided mm. to do. Now, clearly, there may be sensibilities to deal with and complications. But if the Queen has said, right, OK, I'm going to cut the rubbish. We're all going in morning suit. You yeah. can wear your medals. Then it's the Queen's decision. Now, I don't... That might be something that Philip didn't want to happen, but that's because, you know, she's just thinking, well, I wanted to take the heat out of it and just get on with it. But it's... I don't suddenly think there are... The rifts are clearly between William and Harry, and no one's going to deny that that 
is a very and as if to sort of amplify that though they're not walking side by side are they they're going to be no. somebody between them well, now you can't tell me that the royal family haven't given some thought to that i'm sure right? that because what they don't want is probably the two sort of endless looking at the glances between them and right. you know sort of any time you know you take a photograph and yes you can find one photograph when they're both probably sneering yes which will just be a moment in time, but it doesn't necessarily mean they are. You know what's going to be at. So I think to try and keep Well, let me separate. tell you, there will still be a picture, won't there? Oh, no but, matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, there will still be a picture. But, but in, in between, Princess Anne's son, I think, is going to be there, isn't he? Yeah, Peter Phillips, Yeah, um, who was... Uh, he, though, he has not got... Uh, he's getting divorced or is divorced from uh, Autumn, right. his wife, so she's not there. So, um, and that's... There are a couple of, you know, the prince and prince. They are uh, quite good at discarding the wives, aren't they? I mean, because Fergie is not going to be there either. Well, but Fergie's divorced, so therefore, why why should she be if you're down to 30? Well, I suppose. It just seems a bit brutal to me. Well, no, but she's no longer married. The golf club I used to belong to in America, where the guy turned up with his new wife, and his old wife turned up um, to play golf, and they wouldn't let her in. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what, if if (laughs) if you're a member of the All England Club. Yeah. You know, don't think, and you've always you've been married to a member of the All England yes. Club at Wimbledon, and he and he or she uh, dies. Well, don't expect to get tickets for the next Wimbledon. Well, if it was your spouse As, who was the who was the you, member, yeah, really? you will, that. You, know, you see, it's, that's it's, gonna, that's, now that you've outed them on the air, that'll probably have oh, to change. Oh dear. I'm hopefully <laughs> working at Wimbledon this year. But I well, not change. anymore. But but it's understandable. There's no. You know, it's a, you. It, I don't know what the rules are within the yeah. MCC, but I think it's probably that. Anyway, we digress yes. away. But I, I, I think when you're down to thirty, mm. I think it is important. He wanted to find a way of getting his um, family from uh, another extended family on his side. Yes, there, and so therefore there had to be some notable absentees, like the Prince Michael and Princess Michael of Kent, the Duchess of Gloucester, yeah. although the Duke of Gloucester will be there, and um, I think there's one other sort of quite notable, maybe the Duchess of Kent's not there. Yes. And so, But obviously the, the stories are uh, about the, the, the brothers, Dukes yeah. to be kept apart. Well, you see, this is... That's the Times. I, I, you can't I, say that's the tabloids. Brothers at arm's I'm, length on the front page of the Sun. Absolutely. Wills and Harry kept apart at funeral. And brothers apart on the Daily yeah. Mail. I, I, I know, and clearly we know there's a rift, mm. and it's desperately sad. But what we've got to make sure that the focus of attention tomorrow, from two o'clock onwards is about Philip and in remembering him. And, and that is the important thing. And that's what I really want to see come through tomorrow. And that we can ignore the sideshows that are happening in the build-up. And because people are probably looking for something to come out with six or seven pages. And yes, we've got details of the funeral. We've got and, the route going through yeah. Windsor. It looks like that's going to take quite a long time. Uh, no, well, see, round the castle... Yeah, but seven minutes, I think it is, from the moment they leave, they come out from the inner chapel or where you know, mm. placed into the Land Rover. It's then they walk to the church, and I think they leave the inner area at two forty-four. Yeah, and if my memory serves me right, then they get to the actual the main St George's Chapel and the main entrance, where the Royal Marines pallbearers will then carry the coffin into the chapel. Right. That happens at two fifty-three for the service to start at three o'clock. And remember all things royals in these kind of things, whether it be troop, trooping the colour or anything, these are rehearsed and worked out to the minute. Mm. So someone will have walked at the speed they want to drive yes. the, the Land Rover 
behind and said, right, how long is it going to take if we drive at exactly, say, five miles an hour to get from there to there? And they now know it takes seven minutes. Yes. And we've also been told that he planned this with military precision, Prince Philip, right? So what's coming behind the Land Rover then? Uh, Is is the Queen going to be in a princess? uh, She's going to be be, uh, separate in one of the state Bentleys. Right. But behind there will be walking will be the, mem- the members of the family, and I think it will be um, Prince uh, Prince of Wales and Princess Royal uh, that will be right behind, and there will be a yeah. procession behind, mm. walking. Right. Other, uh, Not all the 30 uh, will be doing. Obviously, the Queen is one of those. She will be going... Uh, she won't be walking. She'll obviously. be driven to uh, another entrance, and uh, she's going to have a period where she's going to be able to just have a quiet moment of reflection as before the coffin then leaves and goes to the chapel but she will be accompanied by a lady in waiting but the lady in waiting won't be amongst the 30 mourners directly inside Mm. the chapel there's going to be a a slight viewing area somewhere where courtiers and some other people can be placed but it's way out of and is it realistic to expect nobody to be watching you know, from the from the pavements. I mean, the mayor of, of Windsor has apparently threatened people with arrest well, I if think, they show up. Well, there's, there's it doesn't sound, sound very British. Yeah, does but it? no, but that doesn't sound very British. But there's nothing to see. Right. Well, there's people to see, surely. No, because they're inside. You won't see them from inside the Windsor Castle. Oh, everything's, I see. everything's happening. So this map here is nothing to do with Windsor. Then. No, it's basically inside oh, the I Windsor see. Castle grounds. Limey, big, isn't it? Yes, it is a big place. Mm. So therefore... And I've that's... only been to Windsor recently twice. Once was to go night racing, right? And the mm. other time was when uh, the, the St George's Chapel went on fire, when I was well, still was... working for the Express. Well, that was quite some time ago. It was. That was part of the Annus Horribilis. It was. In 93. workmen 90... who were stripping mm. paint mm. managed to set fire to it. Yeah, and then it was all part... And then the divorce was going for Charles. So yep. that was a horrendous year. Yes. So. It wasn't, it wasn't recently, Mike. No, was, uh, <laughs> I've been around a long time, um, you know. <laughs> you, we're you, talking 1990s, I think. Yeah, well, early 90s. So you must have, it must have been one of your first jobs then, Mike. Uh, obviously, this yeah. after I'd done 10 years in America. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> okay. Listen, well, I'm not as old uh, as I look. Um, clearly. Or perhaps the other way around. Perhaps the other way around. I'm I'll, younger than I look. Yeah, that's what it is. I'm flattering you. No, but I'm here's the thing. No good to do that. So, 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 no, so actually, so mm. nobody can see anything. Nobody can see anything. No so point. that's uh, no point. And I actually, I was talking to someone who lives in Windsor. Mm. And I know she. She said, "Look, it's it, it's per, everything's carrying on as normal, right? Um, but you won't. Uh, there will be people, of course, probably will go. Yes. But if you're going to think you're going to see anything happening up close and personal, mm. you won't. Okay. Because that's the whole point, right. and that is helping them. Yes, there will be uh, soldiers will be lining the route from the, internally, right? Uh, various, and we'll be able to watch it all on TV. And then so. it's going to be wall-to-wall. And, of course, uh, James Well and I will be, um, if you're out and about or whatever, watching it on uh, yes. on, on uh, uh, the YouTube channel. Remember to look watch at the camera. Watch it on Tool Radio. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, always yeah. remember to look at the camera. Yeah. The TV now. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a change of pace for me. But uh, here's the point. It will be everywhere. Mm. There will be a huge interest, and quite rightly so, in a man who has, you know put his life on the line for this country in the Second World War yeah. and then committed his his life to this country. And while it wasn't always smooth, uh, it was occasionally troubled waters yes. along the way, ultimately his commitment to this country was unwavering oh, and important. So married for 73 yeah. years. I mean, of course there's going to be well, the old bump in the road. Right. But, I mean, they were clearly very devoted to one another. Absolutely. And, you know, it... it 
it, it was probably quite tough this last year, like for so many, mm. dealing with, you know, had to live in a royal bubble at Windsor. Yes. Um, and probably quite lonely for them as well, because you've seen the pictures that he did like and loved having his great-grandchildren mm. around. There's some really lovely pictures. That is a lovely picture. When yeah. Was out and so you, but so when missed, and, you know, I, I know that um, he was um, very excited that, Zara Tyndall had another child yes. and I know that he was getting in touch with her and, and seeing the baby mm. from where he was even though he'd come out of hospital and yeah. uh, sadly will never never was able to meet that, that, that their latest child right. so it showed he did care um, but clearly would have been upset by all and would have frustrated him all the sh- shenanigans that have been going around mm. the Andrew saga and obviously the Harry and uh, William Saga will have deeply troubled him. Yeah. But at, like any family member, you just think, well, you want to try and resolve it. And that's what he wanted it. to try and resolve. And I asked you up. on Monday when we saw you mm. in, the, in the pub um, whether Harry would be leaving fairly shortly after the, the funeral. Do we know yet what, uh, what his plans are? Well, we didn't know that he turned up as quickly as he did on Sunday. Yeah. And I don't think we do know. But probably he, it is, you know, they're saying he wants to get, you know, people have said that he wants to go back quickly but I'm not in a position to say one way mm. or another because um, people will also read into his time here as to how long he stays here and what that therefore yeah. means for the future and, and given that he's been in isolation he hasn't been able to um, see William and maybe to have a heart to heart just but just the two of them mm. and if he goes back straight away then he might not be able to have that so you never know because of course the way they will you see to you can't get, you've got to still go even through the protocols of this funeral yes the households different houses will be kept sort of slightly yeah. separate from right. each other and um, that does seem i know um, mm. it's supposed to be done that way and it does seem to be the way that they want to do it but nevertheless i mean the queen's sitting on her own wearing a mask at the funeral of her husband of 73 years it doesn't look right to me uh, i'm sorry well the whole thing is you know we know the whole last year hasn't mm. necessarily been right but the royal family are in the very difficult position of having to um, abide absolutely to be rigid. seen to be doing the right thing because you know that they are not there to rock the boat mm. and if the laws of the government are and the, the, that this is the situation then they have to abide and seem to be abiding by it and however hard it might be but clearly you know there will be other funerals going on today and tomorrow where the same discussions will have been taking place yeah. how do we limit it to 30 and how can we do it within the confines right. of the of the current regulations. And yes, it does feel horrible that they've got to sit in church with masks on. Mm. Um, but that's... that's I guess it would be difficult for them to do it any other way. No. I mean, uh, given also what happened last weekend where the BBC got into all sorts of trouble by calling it wrong, you know, putting it out on both channels, BBC One, BBC Two, cancelling BBC Four altogether. Mm. I presume they won't be doing that this weekend. No, I think they, they are going to put it on uh, BBC One. I think they've, they've got their coverage to end at about 20 past four. And then I think they've got football will be carrying. All sport, of course, is cancelled, but there's a cup semi-final, which I think they're covering afterwards. And so life will... Uh, continue and 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 that I think will be very much is very much Prince Philip's motto, mm. right? You know the show must go the on. The show must go on, and let's not 
you know, go over the top. He w- he would he's going to probably be livid with his acres of coverage. If, I know. If he if he's reading from wherever he is right now, right. he'll be going, "Oh my goodness me!" I know. Me. I know. What a lot of fuss and bother. Yes. You know? exactly, I'm sure. That's he, exactly I'm sure. what he would be saying. Yeah. And and even in these restrained circumstances, the acres of print that he would consider being wasted on this. Uh, would probably be irritating him enormously. <laughs> there's no two ways about it. No. He would be. But I do feel, you know, there's some lovely pictures. And he was 99 years yeah. of age. I mean, let's face it. it and that's wasn't. the point. When when I was hearing some radio stations, not as good as ours, reporting that this tragedy was, you know, afflicting the nation. Well, it's not a tragedy. I'm sorry to no, say. This is, when somebody at 99 yeah. dies, it's not a tragedy. It's a, We have a chance to celebrate yeah, a life quite. lived to the max. Absolutely. And able to, has left a contribution and even, yes, there may be family issues, but what you're hearing about everything that he was involved in, he didn't court publicity, yeah. but everything that he was involved in, he gave 100%, and every organisation has res- respected his input mm. and his concern. And he wasn't just a cursory figure. So when he got involved in something, he wanted to be seen to be making a contribution yes. that was of value and said, right, as everything's got to have a purpose. I'm not just here to wave gracefully. I want to contribute. Yes. And that's and he did he, contribute, and he was a patron of an awful oh, lot of organisations, wasn't he? I don't know how he found the time. Mm. Um, but he, he, you can, without, it's very hard to find any organisation, I don't think I've found one yet that has anything but the, you know, the deepest and fondest memories of mm. working with him and his commitment. He wouldn't suffer fools. I no. mean, you could probably be on the end of a sharp tongue yes. if things weren't done properly. Well, that's good, though. But doesn't that, isn't that, people aren't prepared now to probably to have a, you probably have to go and well, hug a tree if you do well, something probably, wrong yeah. now. You go and but anyway. do sort of two weeks of penance, penance somewhere. But I'll tell you one of the interesting little twists for me is Tom Bradby being there because, of course, he fell out rather famously with Prince William. He's the uh, former ITN royal correspondent, now sort of head mm. chief uh, honcho newsreader. Um, but he very much came down on the side of Harry uh, and Meghan, didn't he? And he was the one to whom she gave that interview in Africa when mm. she said she was, you know, just about surviving. Uh, I, uh, thank you for asking. I think it was just the way she yeah. answered that back. Yeah. But Nobody asks how I am, uh, Well, yes, and uh, from there, it all... Yes, and he's been seen to be clearly... Um, seen in one camp yes and and that's probably quite hard for him to be if you've seen you've got to be neutral yes um with regard to this story Mm. and take a view um his case of the defense might be well i was just doing my job as a journalist and she um spoke now whether how contrived it was i know not but yes but i think that he has also been now counted as one of her allies uh, in uh, in recent times shall we say Uh, correct but then you know, there will be allies to every member of the royal family uh, trying to make sure that their story is put out. Mm. Well, it's going to be a fascinating day. Uh, you'll be here with James Whale, as you said, yep. um, from what time? Uh, I think from two o'clock. Two o'clock. Excellent. I think that's right. All right. Um, Rupert could be wrong, um, but certainly uh, the funeral <laughs> I think I'm right there. takes place between sort of two and three, by the sounds of it, right? Um, uh, two o'clock it starts. Yeah. Uh, well, you've been here before two then. I'm going, I'll be here. No, two o'clock. Uh, it, they, they, the wheels start to turn on the really? Land Rover, right? And then, and then it be, actual service begins at three o'clock. Well, call me old-fashioned. If I was the program director, I'd say be here at one. 
I will be in the building much Good. earlier than that, making Excellent. contributions in the build-up. So well played. Wait. And for the rest of the day. Terrific. Okay? Very nice to Is see you. Is my innings finished here? Very now? soon. You can go. Um, and also, of course, um, Rupert will be around all weekend uh, to comment and to bring all the interesting stuff that comes out of the uh, the, the big day. Because it is a big day. Uh, and, of course, we'll be covering it right here on Talk Radio. The only place to be. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Angela Raffle is Honorary Senior Lecturer at the University of Bristol Medical School uh, in the Department of Population Health Science. The last time we spoke to Angela, she was telling us why she thought mass testing was an absolute and utter waste of time this morning. Uh, various papers have got the story saying that there are urgent concerns over the rapid tests as false positives soar. And it says here uh, that as few as 2 to 10% of positive results may be accurate in places with low COVID rates, which means that you're looking at possibly 98% of uh, things that are uh, positive and negative tests actually not being accurate at all. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. It turns out that you were absolutely 100% correct, since we're talking percentages. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not alone. Um, no, nobody with any expertise in mass testing programmes has actually recommended this testing for everybody in mm. society no um and liverpool didn't you know the results of liverpool were that it didn't really make an impact no exactly right i mean i've seen since you and i spoke last i've seen uh, these mass testing centers opening up all over london uh, particularly in the parts of south london where, where we are um where they're just basically asking people to turn up without any symptoms have a test to see whether they've got something that may or may not exist mm. and it's not the right it's it, there's so many concerns about this approach. So we need to sort out test and trace, and it is getting better, mm. which is really encouraging. Yeah. We really need a good testing and support for isolation system. Even when we think the, you know, the infection rates have gone down, um, they could come back up again. Um, but this testing all, all the people without symptoms isn't the way to do it. Because the problem for me uh, in this, Angela, is if they're testing loads and loads of people and many of the results that are coming back are wrong then how can they base anything on that? That's a very good question. I mean, there's been... We wouldn't roll out a vaccine programme without first evaluating the vaccine. Right. We wouldn't give a new treatment without first checking the treatment. We haven't done any research to see how well these tests perform mm. um, in symptomless people and with the home testing either. Um, so the likelihood... the real The real danger for me is that and I know this is happening already, people will get some symptoms and they'll go, oh, well, it's much easier to do that home test I've got in the cupboard. Um, oh, and that's negative, so I must be all right. Yes. And they'll ignore the symptoms. Right. And that's, that's a real danger because that could increase transmission. Well, that's right. And so on both sides of the equation, uh, it's a problem, isn't it? I mean, The Guardian this morning quotes a guy called Ben Dyson, who's an executive director of strategy at the health department, one of Matt Hancock's top advisors, who's basically said, as of today, someone who gets a positive uh, LFD result in London has at best a 25% chance of it being a true positive. That's pretty hopeless, isn't it? Well, this, this is a phenomenon that people who aren't used to medical tests struggle to get their head around. Mm. So you can, you can have a test that's really, really good um, when you're looking in someone who's quite likely to have the condition. But then when you look in someone who's very unlikely, even though the test is still performing the same, right. the false alarms outweigh the true 
positives mm. massively because the condition has become so rare. You know, it's why, I mean, we don't, you're also looking for needles in haystacks, you know, because that period between when you might have contracted the infection and before you have symptoms mm. is really only a matter of 12 to 24 hours. So you're looking for sort of transient needles in haystacks, yeah. which is why, and I mean, when the World Health Organization uh, last March said, test, 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 mm. you know, I don't, you don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. that, yeah. The rest of that sentence was test every suspected case. Yes. Test every suspected case. Test everyone they've been in contact with for the previous two days, because mm. you're looking at where it came from, um, and test the people they might have given it to. Um, so the test, test, test has been interpreted by the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Health as being, oh, just test anybody yeah. and just get the numbers up. Don't look at whether it's really making an impact. Yeah. And that's what the Public Accounts Committee said. They said, so far there is no evidence that test and trace even has had an impact and that's where we need to focus our effort on sorting it out we've got the testing capacity we've got the public health expertise um and i mean last when the whole service was commissioned out to circo last spring the local centers run by public health people connected to the gp practices they were closed down Mm. you know they were abandoned and so you then lose any link between the people who need testing and the local services uh, that they rely yeah. on and the people who know them and can signpost them to where they might get help and care with, you know, children or getting meals or so on and so forth. And you've just got this impersonal thing run centrally by people who've never done anything like this before. Well, that's right. And and as you said, the opposite is also a problem whereby people test negative and it turns out they might not be negative, but they think they are. Um, and then they don't do anything. And that that's a real worry. I mean, that's, more, that's worse, I suppose, isn't it? It, 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 it's well they're both bad but that one's more dangerous in terms of infection control and I'm I'm very concerned the way the government is sort of giving this impression that oh well we've got a good vaccination program and we've now got mass testing so we're out of the woods mm. and actually the testing is protecting us almost zero because it's not being done properly right. um, so and and there is this temptation that people will go, well, I'll just, I'll just get a test so I can go down the pub. Yes. You know, and maybe I've got a few symptoms. And, I mean, we know from the screening programmes how hard we have to work to train all our sample takers and make them do proficiency testing. Mm. Train all our sample readers, make them do proficiency testing. And I don't know if you've ever had a test done by a professional person. It's quite painful the swabbing yes. and you mustn't get I haven't actually either. to be honest I've sort of avoided it because I've, I've, I've rather, <laughs> I'm, I'm rather squeamish about these things and I don't really I'm, yeah. not, I'm amazed I mean my daughter for example who has been was travelling quite a lot based in Dubai I mean she's had about 30 of them in because she has to get yeah. one every time she goes to Abu Dhabi and every time she has to go yeah. anywhere for work and so she's getting them on a regular basis and I'm like I'm not doing that I just don't want to yeah no well I mean you, you can judge your risk by are you doing the right things? Yes. And is there much infection in your area? Mm. And there are ways that we can keep an eye for hotspots. We can test wastewater to see if the virus is where it's mm. appearing and which variants are appearing. Right. And then we know, you know where to hone in. And it's got to be locally based, really expert outbreak control. Yeah. 
Um, and wouldn't you think, though, now, yeah. Angela, that after all this time, they would have ranked, they would have figured this out because they still don't seem to have got it in any way right yet. I I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. And as I said to you last time we spoke, very few people are actually in a position where they're allowed to mm. speak their minds. Um, it it really feels like it's the commerce. You know, the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Health are now so embroiled in commercially um, dodgy things that yes. they've signed up. Well, they've to. paid two point eight billion for all these tests, haven't they, to this company in California? So I suppose they figured they've got to use them. Yes, and there's also, I mean, there's there's another agenda which I hope isn't happening, but could be, which is that the the UK's approach to protecting ordinary people from quite aggressive marketing mm. of really useless tests, you know, get you worried about conditions and then sell you a test to give you peace of mind. That's big money in America. Mm. Um, and I think they'd quite like to to soften us up to think that we actually need tests all the time to prove we're healthy yes. because there's big money there. And that's all fine and dandy if they work, but if they don't work, I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't yes. it? It's like, it's like having breathalysers that don't work testing everything yeah. that comes out of a pub, and as long as it's negative, despite the fact that the guy's rolling about all over the ground, uh, you go, oh, you're fine, you can get in a car. The test's wrong. Absolutely. And which do you trust? Do you trust your eyes and ears, or do you trust this mm. test, which might be dodgy? I know. Absolutely incredible. Angela, thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, a fascinating story on the front page of the Eye newspaper this morning. Part human, part monkey, embryo is created by scientists. Now, uh, this struck me as something we should definitely look into uh, and see what it's all about. Because, of course, uh, the breakthrough is that it has the potential to treat congenital diseases. But there are a few ethical concerns uh, that you might have to think about. So let's find out uh, exactly what's going on. Professor Dominic Wilkinson's here, Professor of Medical Ethics uh, at the Oxford Uhuro Centre for Practical Ethics. Dominic, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Afternoon. I'm almost certain I pronounced that wrong, but I'm sorry if I did. Um, uh, welcome to uh, the home of common sense. This seems like an incredibly um, fantastic manoeuvre that scientists have come up with. But um, what is the ethical situation with this? Well, I, I think there are ethical issues that we're aware of when it comes to research with human embryos. And there are ethical issues that we're aware of when it comes to animal research and particularly controversial when it comes to primates. Yeah. Um, what's new about this is obviously the combination. You've got uh, an embryo that's got some human cells and some some primate cells, and it raises questions. How, how do we treat that? What are we supposed to do? How long can that embryo be kept alive for? Mm. This research that they've done is is early research looking at these chimeras, which are entities that have got bits of two different species in them. Uh, they didn't survive for very long. Most of these chimeric embryos had died by about 15 days, uh, and none of them were allowed to survive for more than 20 days. So they were a little cluster of cells. Uh, and in itself, this research isn't ethically problematic uh, on, on mo most views. So some, some people will, will have concerns about it. Mm. But it does raise the question in the future about what would happen if these embryos were allowed to develop longer or even... Uh, allowed to be born with some mix of human cells and monkey cells? Would they yeah. be treated like humans or like monkeys or something in between or something different? 
that's a, a difficult question. And also, would um, ethics allow anyone to, uh, to, to, to to give birth, if you like, to something which would then be effectively just experimented upon? Well, that's right. I mean, obviously, it's controversial whether uh, monkeys should be subjects to, to animal experimentation. Uh, we don't allow experimentation on human babies, uh, at least not, not this sort of experiment, certainly medical research in, in babies is important and I'm involved in that in the mm. babies I look after. Um, but, but what would happen if you had an entity that had a mix of tissue? That's a difficult question. Uh, and I don't think anybody's got an answer to that. So that of course means that at the moment it wouldn't be the right thing to do to embark on research that mm. was going to bring into the world uh, an animal, an organism with a mix of human and m monkey cells. Um, but we do need to think about it. Yes. And what would have been the conversation, um, Professor, before this happened, you know, between the scientists as to what they were going to do? I mean, what would they have had to kind of cross-check, if you like? Well, as I understand that this particular research, uh, the team had thought carefully about what their ethical obligations were, what the rules were that applied to this research, um, and whether it was allowed, whether there were particular safeguards one thing that they were very careful to do was to not allow these clusters of cells to develop beyond a very early stage. Um, so that avoids um, some of the problems that would occur if, if the, the embryos developed for, for longer. Hmm. Um, okay. in, in different parts of the world, this sort of experimentation is potentially allowed or, or potentially not allowed. Um, so, so it depends on what part of the world you're in. Yeah, and I understand they're looking to maybe study um, the organs uh, basically for Down syndrome, spina bifida, uh, and, and the study of heart defects. Yes, I, I'm not an expert in, in this sort of research, so I, I can't uh, say that I know exactly how this would be used. There are a variety of different possibilities. One possibility is to develop animal models for drug research that have some human cells in them mm. that would allow potentially drugs to be tested without needing experimentation on in humans or, or as a bridge between traditional animal research and experimentation in humans. Again, it's going to raise questions about, well, what, what are they allowed to do? What are they not allowed to do? How do we treat something that is part monkey and part human? Mm, quite. And so what will be the kind of um, regulation process over something like this? When will they decide that they've had the embryo for long enough and, and that it should then no longer be used? Well, there are tr there are traditional rules that apply to, to human embryo research in terms of how long it is that scientists are allowed to study before the, uh, before the embryo development needs to be stopped. And that typically tends to be within the first uh, two weeks or so after conception. Um, I'm not sure what the plan is in terms of... Uh, in terms of rules around these chimeric embryos. Again, that's a difficult question about how long they should be allowed to go for. Uh, they obviously sh shouldn't be allowed to, to develop to a late stage where those embryos uh, or fetuses were able to feel pain or potentially become aware that uh, isn't something that should be allowed at the, at the moment. Okay. Professor, thanks very much. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.